Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to The Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11am this morning. Plenty of debate and discussion on the issues of the moment. And if you want to get in touch, our WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658 or you can email the programme on... Michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as you probably heard in the news, the government will not be introducing a mini budget to help with the cost of living crisis. The public expenditure minister, Pascal Dunahu, says decisions have yet to be made on exactly what supports will be provided and whether they'll be targeted or universal. There is a cabinet meeting next Tuesday where these measures are expected to be agreed on. Now, a number of sectors in Irish society are certainly feeling the pinch arising from the recent uh, increase in the cost of living. One particular sector is, of course, our old age pensioners. Sue Shaw is the CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament, and she joins me on the line right now. First of all, Sue, the cost of living crisis, um, how difficult is it for those who are old age pensioners in this country at the moment? Uh, Good morning, Ken, and good morning to your listeners. I think the reality is for anybody living, let alone old age pensioners or people dependent on the state pension, living on that and trying to meet the fuel bills that are coming in at the moment is just impossible. It's just not doable. I mean, I listened to the Minister for Finance last week on the radio talk about his knowledge um, of bills coming into his constituents of a thousand euro as they had sent him copies of that. Now if you're living on a state pension of two hundred and fifty two pounds a week and trying to do everything that's required to do and also pay those kind of bills, it just is not possible. So we're clearly calling for him when he says whether it'll be universal or targeted. We're clearly calling on the cabinet to view this in light of where the need is most and target the money at that. It's crucial that they see it in that light. I suppose, Ken, what we'd be saying is that, yes, everybody is feeling the pinch. We're not denying that, that everybody is impacted by the cost of living. It's the degree to which you're impacted that we're asking the government to take into account. Well, now, can I ask you to give us examples of how difficult it is for old age pensioners out there? I mean, are you hearing stories of people going without food, going without heat? And in in some cases, I'm sure there's one or two old age pensioners who might still be paying a mortgage. We have some. We wouldn't have um, 
we wouldn't have as many pensioners on a mortgage as you would. That would be a lower percentage. However, we do have older people on rents and that can be hugely difficult for them. But the reality is whether you have the house and you're paying not paying a mortgage or paying some contribution towards a mortgage or rent, the reality is that for many, many of our um, people dependent on the state pension, for many of them, the reality is, well, how do I plan my week to accommodate the fact that I can't put the heat on? And that's just the truth of it. Do I cut back on food? Do I cut back on... We have people who ring us and say, and I think I said this on an interview with yourselves, that at the outset of the winter and when costs began to really spiral, we had people going in and trying to find in the sales duvets to keep, you know, duvets to keep them a bit warmer because they knew they would not be putting on heat. We have people leaving their houses and going off into the the shopping centres to see can they spend hours out of the house or into a local library where they know it's heated. That is not an option for anybody. It shouldn't be how we operate as a society. Well, no, the, or, or the reality of, like, we have, we have a lot of grandparents who mind their grandchildren. And we know that the one thing they will not do is turn the heat off for the kids when they're the two days they're minding the kids. So that means for the three days prior to them taking the kids that week, they will not put the heat on. They conserve it for their grandchildren. Now they're contributing to society through child-minded, but they're they're making it. It's tougher for them to heat their homes. Okay. Well, we've had an electricity, if you like, credit scheme uh, introduced in the budget last uh, last year. Has that helped in any way to, if you like, uh, lessen the pressure on people who are struggling to meet their bills? I think yes. Of course, if any support helps. But it, it doesn't tip the reality of the bill. Like the bill is a one, do you know what I mean? It's, it's 200 euro. But your bills are coming in on a, it's a one-off payment. The reality is we need to look at how we're supporting people on a more regular basis with a secure income that allows them manage the fluxes. I can see, yes, that it is beneficial. I'm not arguing that we couldn't, you know, people need it. But it's not a long-term solution doling out one-off payments. But also as well as that, they didn't target it. Like for me, the bottom line is that we would have many of, some of our members um, who, are, who would say to us, this is wrong, so I know for a fact when the bill comes in to me, I do cringe at it, but I know I can pay it. I'm not making hard choices around it. Why are they not targeting people who need it? We would have some of our pensioners saying to us, I'm okay, but I'm using the money to help my family, some of my family who can't afford it. So to us, a more targeted solution would be so much better. Also, I think the reality of, of like for everybody, they say everybody's feeling the pinch, but for some, it is, it is about choosing, well, maybe I won't take that weekend away because my bills aren't going up. It's not about eat or heat. It's not those crucial decisions. Do I, you know, how do I manage my electricity bill? My fear of being, thanks be to God, they won't be cut off. But the fear that lives in people of things like that. And I think the government needs to be really looking at where do we maximise the benefit of the interventions we're making? And is a universal payment across the board? And we're calling on the cabinet when they meet next week. Don't look at a universal payment. Look at a clearly targeted payment so that those who need it most are going to get the most support. Okay, just let me put a question to you. The newspapers are reporting this morning that the Green Party in government is planning to block the €200 energy credit this summer. They want this €200 credit to be 
I suppose, kick down the line until next, whatever, October, November, when winter kicks in again. Um, do you think that's a good idea, or do you think uh, that the €200 Euro credit that's being talked about for a fourth payment, maybe into April and perhaps May, should actually be paid by the government? Two points on that, uh, Ken. I would clearly say that there's a recognition, and that in itself tells us something, that there are going to be ongoing supports required while we have the consistent price of fuel at the moment. That itself needs to be tackled. Energy costs need to be tackled, particularly when we can see where there's major profits being made while people are struggling to try and pay the bill. So that's one piece. I think there's a separate piece that they need to acknowledge about that and need to deal with. Secondly, I think the notion that the Green Party are saying things like for the summer, the idea of summer in Ireland is a notional thing. Do you know what I mean? We all talk about the one good day that we got summer. So the, for us, the reality is that summer for many, April and May, that at that period, for many older people, their homes are not suitable for cutting it off because we think, oh, well, it's great that the houses will be warmer. We have a lot of older people. And not only older people, a lot of people living in houses that are much older and the bear rating is very, very low. They can't afford the retrofit. So their homes aren't particularly holding heat. They have rooms that are very, very cold and that they don't heat up that well. And they still need to generate heat. They still need to be using heat right up until May. Some cases, many of our pensioners, many of our people on the state pension are still heating their homes for a couple of hours throughout the summer periods, unless we get, obviously, if we get some beautiful weather than that. But that's that's not a reliable thing in Ireland. And okay, for well, us, we're saying it highlights the lack, like it makes us angry, I suppose, to a degree that how out of touch sometimes the, the parties that are governing us are, about the reality of some of how people are living in this country. Well, on that very point, on, on that very point, uh, Sue, the Irish Independent is reporting this morning that the Green Party is effectively in agreement with what you are saying, is that uh, the most vulnerable families in the state should be prioritised for support in the coming weeks through existing social welfare payments and so on. So, uh, in theory, the Greens are on your side. So will you be lobbying the Green TDs in the coming days to basically say, look, we, we endorse your thinking here and uh, we believe this is the way to go? Absolutely. But we will also be saying to them, please reconsider your call not to, to, to defer the the payment in that so-called summer period. We will. But we do appreciate that the Greens are saying, let's target this. But we're also calling... We know many other TDs at local level are saying, no, we support that all right. We're asking them when it gets to the cabinet decision to have their party voice this and voice it strongly. I also think local people can do an awful lot in that, you know, an email, a phone call or a quick note dropped into their TD's office saying, I'm your constituents and I vote for you. But I really want you to consider that this is unfair. We need it targeted. But I also think it's a long-term thing. We have to look at the payment rates that we have for people that are not secure and that they don't actually manage to meet bills. For the state pension, we know it just it's already acknowledged that it's about £100 less, €100 euro less. I'm showing my age. It's €100 euro less than, um, than is required to live above the poverty line. That's acknowledged. We need to say we want a, a secure state pension that will minimise some of the impacts that we know are happening, as well as those targeted interventions. 
So we would call on the government, be realistic here, make it a target payment, support the Greens when they're saying to target it to the most vulnerable. And well, talk to the agencies that are dealing day in, day out with the reality of people on the ground. Sure, but uh, can I put it to you that the newspapers are reporting this morning that a double child benefit payment in May, a doubling of all social welfare payments as well as once-off payments of targeted welfare supports for low-income families um, are among the measures likely to be discussed uh, today uh, in Cabinet. Are those measures sufficient, do you, do, do you believe, to, to deal with the difficulties that certain sectors in society are facing at the moment? I'm not, I, I am not going to say to any, any government, don't pay those targeted interventions. But the reality is we shouldn't, we need to look at why we so desperately need those targeted interventions. The crisis in the energy is one thing, and there's other ways of managing that as well. But equally, we are saying there is no, there is absolutely no margin for people on a state pension to have a saving to have a cushion that most of us through our lives tried to build for those bills that were extra heavy for rainy day funds. There just isn't a capacity anymore. So please look at increasing state state pensions and other people on state transfers to an affordable, livable payment on an ongoing, regular basis. Yes, the one-off interventions are valuable, and in certain cases, they'll always be needed. But at the end of the day, people would prefer to have their dignity and to manage well on the income. People who are on state pension have worked all their lives. They've contributed either through family care or carer's work or through contributing outside of the home. They do not deserve to be penny-pinching or deciding whether they heat their home or whether they eat or whether they say, you know, I, I, want, I want to mind my grandchildren, but I can't because I can't afford to feed them the extra when they come. And they, they have pride. They don't want to say that to their families. We're just saying, be serious about your, what you see as real for people who are on those state incomes. Um, it's been said down through the years that governments tend to overlook the power of the grey vote, as it's termed, the old age pension vote. Um, is it time for the government to take the view that uh, this cohort of society needs to be listened to very carefully because we're experiencing shifts in the Irish political system where the left has risen, uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have seen their support fall, and that perhaps Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and government should take this cohort of society a little bit more seriously. Do you believe in that? I believe in her. I, I certainly think it, it, it's foolish of any party to not consider their electorate and who are their majority voters. That's just naive to think that they won't get bitten at the, at the polls. But for me, and I think they need to take, of course, the power of the vote of older people is hugely important and we would not that. And the reality is, as we age, we vote. For, that's just the reality, a high percentage. I'm delighted to see that is shifting and changing. But at the end of the day, I think ignoring the very people you want to put you into power by ignoring the, the needs that are clearly stated, have been clearly articulated to you, I think you need to expect then that pe- those people will say, I'm not voting for him or her. She really just paid no attention to what was said to them. 
Okay, that's yeah, a, a... I think it would be foolish to ignore the reality of if you ignore people, they'll ignore you in turn. All right. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. A very strong warning there to the political parties about the strength of our senior vote. That's uh, Sue Shaw there, the CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, replacing the minimum wage with a living wage could see grocery bills increase by up to 5%. That that's according to ISME, which represents small and medium-sized Irish businesses. The Mandate Trade Union is calling for the minimum wage to be scrapped, as a new report shows nearly two-thirds of retail workers are taking home below €451 Euro per week. Neil MacDonald from ISME says he understands the cost-of-living crisis but thinks moving to a living wage would impact on businesses, and he joins me on the line right now. So you're saying, basically, uh, Neil, that this would... Uh, well, make business difficult for your members. On what basis can you say that? Well, uh, good morning, Ken. Um, for, for a lot of the uh, service businesses, including retail, uh, the, the cost of wages makes up a very considerable part of the cost of sales. And, and typically in, in grocery retail, um, wages would represent the second biggest cost after the actual cost of groceries themselves. Uh, so it, were we to move to uh, a living wage, which is uh, currently calculated as being in excess of €13, Euro, and there is a plan to move to that, albeit over a number of years, um, that cost will have to be passed on uh, ultimately to grocery customers um, and at the current rate being proposed for the living wage that would result uh, according to our grocery members in, a, in an increase of between 4 and 5% in grocery cost. Well, now, the minimum wage is 11.30 per hour. That's if you're over 20. And the so-called living wage is 13.85 uh, per hour. That's a gap of about €2.55. I mean, surely your guys can afford to pay staff an extra two fifty-five an hour. Surely that's the case. Uh, well, you can afford to pay people anything that you recover from the customer. Um, that That's... That's the issue, Ken. Um, you know, grocery, uh, retail uh, services are, are cost plus operations. In other words, it, it costs you X to deliver the, the grocery good or, or the service, and and you sell that at a, at a markup to the customer. So, um, of course, it is possible uh, to pay that, but that we're not saying it isn't possible to do it. What we are saying, though, is that that is going to result in an increase in cost to the end customer. And, you know, when you look at the substantive reason behind most wage demands at the moment, it is because of the increase in costs of, of goods and services. So we, we end up, unfortunately, with this, uh, what we call a wage price spiral. In other words, you know, the businesses put up their costs of groceries and services and, and workers then demand more in pay to meet those increased costs. So you're effectively saying that if staff in the retail sector who are on uh, 11.30 per hour, that's the minimum wage, um, if they get pay increases, that you have to pass those pay increases on to the customer who walks through the door and therefore the customer will be paying more to meet the gap, so to speak. So you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to ensure that your rate of profitability stays the same. Isn't that the case? 
for a lot of businesses, yes. And d- don't forget, Ken, I mean, I, I, I know we have um, people who, who treat the word profit as a bad word, but it is important to remember that a company is required by law to to uh, trade profitably. You know, they're not meant to be in business, most particularly as a, as a limited company, if they are not uh, selling their goods and services for more than the cost of delivering those goods and services. That is, that is actually a requirement uh, under company law. So, um, yes, if businesses don't maintain a degree of profitability, uh, if they're not able to not merely cover their cost of sales but generate a profit in doing so, then they won't stay in business. So that is actually a pretty fundamental requirement uh, in business that costs plus an element of profit are covered by the cost of sales. Well, now, can I ask you this? Could a change to a living wage impact on jobs? And indeed, would would retailers be tempted to bring about that change? Well, it's it's part of an ongoing... You, you, you can kind of see it yourself, uh, Ken. You know, we, we've progressively um, witnessed changes and uh, adaptations in the retail supply chain, most especially in, in grocery, but, but not just in grocery. I think people will have seen in Decathlon, there's, there's also there um, on, on, on the M50, anyone who's gone to it, you know, we do see um, automated tellers now for checkout where customers are actually checking out their own goods rather than a uh, rather than a, a human being doing doing so. Well, I was going to come to you on that. I mean, the fact that in certain supermarkets now there are less staff than ever before because people do, as you say, they do their own checking out. I mean, aren't you guys actually making more profit as a result of cutting back on staff numbers due to automation? Well, you know, you know, I I can't speak to the actual profitability of any given retailer, and we do know that some of the very large uh, international retailers uh, do seem to enjoy high degrees of profitability here. I'd I'd have to say that in the sector that we would represent, the the small retailers and the small uh, bricks and mortar clothing stores. They're actually the ones that are closing, Ken. You know, uh, I mean, a substantive fear for employees in in a lot of those smaller stores is that they won't actually have a job at all in the next year or, or so. They they are businesses that have been sorely affected by uh, online purchasing and and some of the big online retailers. Um, so. Of, of course, there is an issue with businesses uh, going through a process of innovation that unfortunately, in a lot of cases, does result in the removal of human beings from, from part of the transaction. You know, the, the, the ultimate point of that, of course, is, is in what we see with the, uh, the big online retailers for, for whom, you know, the goods move directly from a warehouse to your doorstep without any... Uh, intervening retail step in the middle. So so that already represents a significant uh, reduction in employment level. Yeah, I mean, the small and medium-sized enterprise sector in this country, it seems to be quite healthy. A lot of businesses seem to be doing well. And I'm just wondering, I mean, what would you say to somebody who, who would say that, uh, you know, your um, resistance to introducing the living wage of €13.85 per hour is nothing more than a whinge to, if you like, minimise cost and maximise profitability? 
Oh, well, look, I absolutely understand that people who are struggling to to, to make ends meet, most particularly in the inflation crisis we have at the minute, the uh, crisis in energy prices and the crisis in both rental accommodation and purchased accommodation, of course, it is natural in the it is part of the human condition to seek to be paid more um, for what one does. But, you know, the, the small enterprise sector is a very, very broad church in Ireland. Uh, Canada it employs somewhere between 65 and 70 percent of all employees and in the country in gainful employment. And a great many of those sectors are under a very severe squeeze, uh, and most particularly in Main Street, bricks and mortar retail. They are some of the businesses which actually are not trading very successfully at all. And the, the change in, in our work patterns, um, particularly around blended working uh, and part-time work from home, has meant that a great many of those businesses that used to have, for example, a good five-day weekday trade are now trying to trade on, on a three-day week basis. You know, the ca- uh, cafes and the sandwich shops and th- those sorts of businesses that trade on our main street, because of the change in our work patterns, th- those businesses are really struggling to, uh, n- not a mind profit, Ken. They're actually struggling to meet the turnover they did three years ago. So we are going to see whether we like it or not, um, we are going to see a big shake-up in Main Street, Ireland, because of the change in behaviours that has resulted from the pandemic and, and how our work patterns have changed. Because and of course, of online shopping as well is not helping the high street either. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, while while you and I may say that, but of course, a, a lot of people you know, will, will avail of the ability to, to uh, you know, to Online shopping is is effectively a global marketplace, okay. Okay. Um, and it's and it's very tempting. What we try to do is to say to people, "Look, we're not asking you not to shop online. All we right. are asking you to divert a percentage or a proportion of your of your spend into bricks and mortar retailers in your local town." Okay, so Anya, just to cut a long story short, you're opposed to the living wage because you think it'll be uh, it'll be damaging for businesses. It'll make more businesses. We're actually not opposed to the living wage at all, Ken. What we say is, imposition of the living wage will have consequences for the retail supply chain, and it will cost customers. There's no way that a, a, an increase in wages of that degree will not increase cost to the end customer. What we're saying is that given the fact that Ireland has now overtaken Denmark as the most expensive consumer country in the European Union, only non-EU countries like Iceland, Norway and Switzerland are more expensive in continental Europe than we are now. What we're saying is is for our, our preference would be that at least part of the, of the additional expense for workers would be made up by the social wage. And so those costs we're referring to are the likes of medical card costs, access to social and affordable housing, which in rural areas you're you're prevented from access to social and affordable housing if your income exceeds €25,000 a year. Childcare, which is now equivalent to a mortgage for an awful lot of workers. The, The state 
can control our, our need to spend more on goods and services by meeting the social wage. That's that's the sort of mix we're talking about, Ken. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll have to keep an eye on that to see how it pans out in the months and years to come. That's Neil MacDonald there, who is the CEO of ISME, who represent Irish small and medium-sized businesses in this country. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has said that there is a legitimate question to be asked over an apparent 6,000 unit discrepancy in the number of homes completed last year. The government's official figure, supplied by the Central Statistics Office and based on electricity connections, is that 29,851 homes were delivered in 2022. That's higher than its 25,000 target. But an analysis by the consultant firm Construction Information services claims there were 23,751 completions last year. That's 6,100 fewer than the official figure. So somebody is not doing their mathematics correctly and there seems to be this uh, discrepancy in relation to the calculations. One man who's been keeping an eye on this is Kean O'Callaghan, who is the Social Democrat spokesperson on housing and TD for Dublin Bay North. Uh, Kean, what's going on here? Well, I think what's happening here is there's two different things being counted in two different ways. Uh, And to be fair to both CSO and Construction Information Service, both of them have put a huge amount of work into their data sets. And, you know, their their data sets are quite rigorous, but they're counting two different things. So the ESB, sorry, the CSO is is counting new ESB connections and and doing some cross-referencing on that. And from that, they're creating an estimate on the amount of new bills uh, homes last year. The Construction Information Service is going to uh, data that's provided by the National Building Control Office and it records certificates of homes that are completed. So it's counting up uh, that data and arriving at its figure uh, from that. So it's two very different ways of, of counting uh, new homes. Now, I guess what's Significance in this is up until the last year's figures, the both ways of counting came up with fairly similar uh, results. And when you look at the the difference, this the six thousand home gap, most of those three and a half thousand of these uh, were in Dublin. And we know what happened. What was different in terms of Dublin home construction, particularly last year, is that there was more uh, apartments built. So. It is quite likely that the way the ESB connections are being counted, are that the and are the the completion certificates are being counted in relation to apartment construction in Dublin, that could be uh, what's driving this this significant gap uh, in in the numbers. And is there any evidence to suggest that this might be as a result of what might be called annual overlap? In other words, a house is built, we'll say, in 2021. But in January, February, March, that's when the electricity connections take place. And therefore, that slightly distorts the figures, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that could be the distortion. And I mean, there's variances on that as well. You you could have a connection for a number of homes before they're actually fully completed and built out as well. So that that could be happening at the other end of the, the year also. And there could also be a delay in terms of, you know, a builder is legally required when they build a home, they're uh, legally required to have a certificate uh, of completion uh, and they have to lodge that with the National Building Control Office. But some of them could be, uh, you know, delaying in that in terms of filing their paperwork. So that could explain this 
as well. There is a, a question mark over uh, the National Building Control Office. Some of their, you know, some people are saying that when they, you know, when there's 100 apartments finished there, sometimes that's just recorded as one unit when it's just one development and there could be mistakes there. Now, I, I gathered the Construction Information Service who did the analysis in this, you know, say that they cross-checked everything there with planning permission. So if something was entered as just one unit, they would have checked, well, actually, there's there's 70 here that were given planning permission and they would have then counted okay, 70. But so, yeah, yeah. Doesn't this beg the obvious question that the time has come for some agency of the state to come up with a more accurate way of determining when a house is complete? Yeah, I do think we need accurate figures on this. I, I mean, there's a huge difference between 24,000, just under 24,000, just under 30,000 uh, homes. Uh, we should be able to say this reliable, reliably. You know, it, these are solid structures, uh, very visible solid structures. So, it, you know, it's not like counting things that are, are less tangible. So it should be possible to have uh, data that everybody can be happy with and, and stand over. And really, given that both data sets were work very similar until until 2022, uh, it should be possible to resolve this and just drill into the figures and see, well, why why is this gap emerging? And it could could be a case, yeah, that, that one is just slightly ahead of, of counting than, than the other, you know, uh, and that there's a time lapse there. Um, or, there could be, or there could be miscounting going on, you know, there could be, uh, you know, another possibility is you could have the ESB providing a connection for 100 homes, but only 50 of those are, are completed, uh, even though that connection is provided for 100. So I, th- I think it is possible for us to get the detail on this and be able to then confidently say how many homes were, were built. And I think that it, that would be useful to do. What would you say to a cynical listener who would say this is proof that the government can manipulate and distort figures to, if you like, benefit its own argument? In other words, uh, the government has been saying, oh, we uh, we, we built almost 30,000 houses last year when another set of figures says we only built 23,000 houses. Yeah, well, I, I, look, I don't think there's any question of the, the government manipulating the figures in terms of the CSO uh, data set uh, and, and getting involved in that level of detail. It is worth saying the CSO themselves, in their methodology on this, they do say that it may only have an 83% level of accuracy. They also identify through cross-checking analysis they did that they had more false positives and false negatives, 22% more. And they actually say in their methodology that it may have a slight bias towards overcounting new dwellings. So the CSO caveats their figures uh, in their in their methodology, in the fine detail on it. Uh, so that does need to be taken into account uh, on this as well. Now, they also reject the, the figures from Construction Information Service. They did, one of their criticisms of, of those figures from Construction Information Service, they said they weren't counting uh, one-off uh, houses and they don't require a completion certificate. They're exempt from that requirement. Finally, not, um, yeah, Keen, I just... That's not want... the case, just to say, they, they do count sure. one-off houses. Finally, and very, very briefly, um, Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, says that the government is meeting its targets and that the plans are, if you like, going to plan. Are you satisfied with that uh, type of comment from Dara O'Brien? No, I I don't think anyone can say that with absolute confidence at this point uh, until we get the detail. I think it is important that we get the detail to establish establish that. Certainly the the analysis that was released this week uh, puts serious question marks over the claim of 30,000 a new homes figure, and we need to bottom that out uh, before I think anyone can be certain on those figures.
Well, I mean, I think there was a figure out recently that said at the rate we're going, it could be 2050 by the time supply matches demand. What needs to be done to speed up the process? I was reading somewhere recently that because we lost so many tradespeople during the economic crash in 2008, the exodus of carpenters, builders, block layers, electricians and so on, we just don't have enough people in those professions uh, who can, if you like, help to speed up the process. Is that something that needs to be looked at with a sense of urgency? It, it is, yeah. We, we've a key shortage of, of all those skills and in fact the number of people going into apprenticeships and those key building skills is actually declining uh, year on year rather than increasing. So that needs a huge amount of reform, incentivisation, get more people into those uh, trades that we, you know, we desperately need. There also needs to be more work done in terms of getting development land uh, available for construction. Other countries are very good at kind of actively managing that, whereas we just kind of leave it to the private sector to assemble sites, and they can, you know, that can lead to land hoarding and can lead to delays and, and all of that. Whereas in other countries, you know, like the Netherlands, they, the, the local authorities and the state, they actively assemble land for housing to make sure there's a consistent supply of, of land. There's issues around financing uh, as well uh, for construction, but they, look, the, the state can actually still uh, get a lot of uh, finance in at, at relatively low interest rates to fund construction. So in terms of doing affordable housing, affordable purchase housing, uh, that's something that we should be doing more of. So there is a lot that can be done on this. Yes, there's uh, challenges, but if we just keep going the way we are with a kind of laissez-faire attitude to the skills we need and everything else, hoping it would all fall into place. You know, it hasn't fallen into place. It hasn't worked. We're not getting the delivery that is uh, desperately uh, needed uh, to ensure that, you know, there's enough supply and enough supply of affordable homes for people. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that really needs to be uh, much more urgency uh, in terms of addressing those kind of structural uh, gaps and, and deficits in housing. All right. Supply. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Kean O'Callaghan, who is the Social Democrat spokesperson on housing. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, our WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658. Now, if you're a, a motorist of a certain age, you will know that down through the last number of decades, the cost of car insurance has been increasing, increasing, increasing to a point where I think at one stage we had the second highest car insurance rates in the EU after the Netherlands and the government decided that the time had come to deal with this. They uh, drew up a plan and they had a chat with the judiciary and they told the judges not to be paying out ridiculous compensation payments uh, for nothing more than a sore finger arising from an accident and we were told that insurance costs would be coming down. There appears to be some anecdotal evidence that the cost of car insurance is going up again. One man who knows about this is Peter Peter Boland, he's the director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Um, you're saying, Peter, that uh, anecdotal evidence is that uh, the cost of annual premium or premia, depending on whether you're a Latin or a Greek scholar, is going up again. And uh, I suppose the question is, what evidence do you have for this? Good morning, Ken. Yes, so we've been running a rolling uh, piece of research since those judicial guidelines that you mentioned came into place in April 2021. And certainly initially we saw a reaction to them from the insurers in that premiums on renewal started to drop uh, from motorists. And uh, the National Claims Information Database, which is the database that the Central Bank now run, indicated that in that year uh, premiums dropped by 2%. Um, 
Now, we don't have data for 2022, but we suspect that the reduction is in around the same. So there would be modest reductions given that the uh, average uh, payout for a minor uh, personal injury is down by somewhere between 40 and 50% now. But they were going in the right direction. And our research reflected that. Now, what we're seeing in the last few weeks is renewal starting to increase again. And when we chase them up with the respondents, they're saying, look, nothing has changed. Uh, it's the same car, same circumstances, no penalty points, no accidents. Uh, and yet my premium is going up. And so this is an early warning from us. Uh, it would be unconscionable if it were the case that premiums are starting to go up again because everything is working in favour of the insurers. Everything that they asked of government and the opposition, the Gardaí, the courts and policyholders has been provided. We're one of the safest countries in Europe in terms of motoring. Uh, and yet, uh, it looks as if premiums may be going up again. And like I say, uh, that is not a sustainable position. There is a moral contract in place with the insurers in terms of delivering reductions on the back of all the reforms. And if that's not happening, uh, then we have a serious problem societally. Okay, is this just pure greed on behalf of the insurance companies? Well, look, it it depends on what way you package it. Uh, Ultimately, insurers have an obligation uh, to maximise the return for their shareholders. And, you know, they, they, they are not charities on one front they have to make a, a, a reasonable profit but on the other hand they cannot be allowed to exploit a situation um, which emerged over the last 20 years in Ireland uh, where we were paying way and above the European average Well I looked at this some years ago I was a researcher in a programme in RT and we looked at the high cost of car insurance and uh, while the insurance sector wouldn't admit it uh, the signs were that there was like a cartel in operation where each insurance company was effectively uh, tic-tacking with each other and determining what the insurance premium per car, per year, per age, per engine size should be is there signs and once again you know you know the word cartel is a word the insurance how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sector don't like to hear, but are there signs that they're all operating in cahoots with each other to keep insurance costs high so that they maximise their profits and, as you say, they make generous returns to their shareholders? Well, certainly the European Commission was of the view that when it came to access to their database, which is absolutely critical for insurers to get their claims database, uh, that uh, they restricted access to that database. Uh, and they've had to agree to a series of uh, very strict controls in terms of the way that they uh, allow insurers who are not members of their representative body to get access to that database. So certainly the suggestion would be uh, that there was a certain amount of control over who and who could and could not offer insurance in this country. And this is where government comes in. Uh, and this is absolutely what we're talking about now. Um, government have accepted for three years now that there's a need to get additional competition into the market. Things have never looked better for people coming in to, to offer insurance in Ireland in that all the reforms have gone through uh, and uh, they would obviously have none of the legacy issues of the old regime. Um, so Ireland, I, I dare to say, is becoming an attractive place to offer insurance. Uh, but we're not seeing that reflected in additional underwriters coming in and it's a matter of absolute urgency that government follow up on their commitments in this area uh, and get additional insurers in. Well, on the uh, the basis that our population has now just passed the 5 million uh, mark, and it's similar to countries like Denmark uh, and Finland and so on, um, the argument being put forward in the past was that the Irish market was too small and it wasn't worth, uh, if you like, the effort of foreign insurance companies to come in here. But on the basis that our population has grown, the economy is in the main going well, there are more people driving than ever before, What does the government need to do to offer incentives to uh, other European insurance companies to come in here and set up shop and, if you like, shake up the market? Uh, Well, uh, on your first point there, um, if Ireland was a small, unattractive market, then we wouldn't have most of the major uh, multinational underwriters operating profitably here. So I've never bought that, to be honest. Um, now, in terms of small niches within the the market, particularly on the liability side, which has serious issues in terms of affordability at the moment, uh, there might be an issue. But when it comes to the motor insurance area, uh, that, in my view, is nonsense. Um, what government can do, uh, I think, is highlight everything that has changed. Um, I wouldn't have fancied the job of selling Ireland as a destination for insurers three or four years ago because it was genuinely a basket case. Um, But it has turned itself inside out. 
uh, and that has not been reflected in what the incumbent insurers are offering by way of premiums uh, and therefore it has to come down to additional competition in the market and I, I, I think that's an increasingly easier job. Okay, I know from my own research working on this some years back that the real villains in the insurance game were not necessarily the insurance companies but Irish judges who were making um, compensation awards that were just out of kilter with the rest of Europe. These new measures that were introduced by the government, are you satisfied that the judiciary in this country have now finally got their act together? Each judge is entitled to their own view in their own courtroom, uh, but the Judicial Council, um, which is their collective organisation, have laid down new judicial guidelines, uh, which dramatically cut the level of damages for minor injuries. They didn't cut them to the extent that would have brought us in line with England and Wales, um, our nearest neighbour in this respect, uh, and certainly nowhere near uh, the level of damages that handed out in the rest of Europe. Um, but they were a very significant reduction. So um, certainly it would seem that the judiciary have got it, for want of a better word. Um, and in terms of apportioning blame on this, in terms of the real villains, I think there's plenty of blame to go around on this. Um, but really what we're about is making sure that the reforms that are in place uh, are fully reflected in insurance costs. Well, no, you had a champion in the form of uh, Minister of State at the time, Sean Fleming, if I recall. He was the guy who was banging all the heads together to get this sorted out. He's moved on. He's now in the Department of Foreign Affairs, and I think Neil Richmond has replaced him. Is it time for you people to lobby the likes of Neil Richmond and say, listen, Neil, you need to look at this again because we're going back to our old ways? I think it's uh, Jennifer Carl McNeil has replaced um, Sean Fleming. Oh, sorry, yeah, she's got a different uh, portfolio. We're actually meeting him today. Okay. And uh, what what point, of course, will you be making to Jennifer in terms of putting manners on the insurance companies? Hold the incumbent insurers to account and get more competition in. And it's as simple as that? Absolutely. All right. Okay. We're going to leave it there. We wish you well. I'm sure there's a lot of motorists listening to the programme at this moment in time who will back you all the way to get insurance costs down to, uh, if you like, a very manageable and acceptable level. That's Peter Boland there, Director for the Alliance of Insurance Reform in this country. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Hilary in Meath was in touch to say, good morning, Ken. Myself and my family are living in a four-bedroom council house, which is very hard to heat. We have a problem with dampness in the kitchen and the bathroom we have black mould I have the heating on but it makes no difference whatsoever to the house as it's still freezing I've been on to the council and I'm still waiting to get the dampness sorted I'm on social welfare I had the prepay meter installed and I put in 100 euro in the meter box last week and I had to put in another 50 into it on Tuesday so it's just money after money into the meter we need more action from government to help those struggling to meet energy costs as it's the largest output for most families at the minute and those comments from Hillary sort of lead me on nicely to my next interviewee because a record 228,301 calls to uh, for help to the Society of Vincent de Paul were made in 2022 and a further increase in January of this year already showed that targeted and permanent supports are needed for households in crisis. I'm joined on the line right now 
uh, by Marcella Stakem, who's a research and policy officer with St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, Marcella, you heard those comments there from Hillary in County Meath. I, I presume, rightly or wrongly, that that is a, a common tale uh, throughout the land. Is that the case? Yes, and so our members visit people in their homes and they would have that experience of seeing people that are living in very cold, damp and expensive homes to eat. Um, And so that is really a cause of concern for us. Um, You know, that people are not living in homes that are adequately warm and affordable energy for us. It's a basic requirement for a healthy and decent standard of living and warmth and light and hot water, the the ability to cook a healthy meal all depend on having, you know, reliable access to energy. And for too many people that, you know, we visit, these needs have not been met. We know, like, from uh, what our members are telling us, that people are turning off the heat for fear of the next bill. Um, They're feared, you know, that their accounts are falling into arrears. And they are really going out without the basics, without... Uh, without having enough food so that they um, have enough money to put into the meter or or cutting back on other essentials. And so that is the reality for thousands of of people that we have supported um, over the last number of years as the rise in costs of living has continued. Well, you're saying that the number of calls to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul is up. Are there any particular cohorts or categories of calls that have noticed a notable increase? So, yeah, the majority of those calls that we have received came from households with children. And 45% of all those requests came from one-parent families. So we know from research that one-parent families are four times more likely to live in consistent poverty. We have also seen that approximately 70% of our calls to SUP come from households with children. And for us, that's a real concern because child poverty is a real concern because growing up in poverty is associated with worse outcomes for children across all key aspects of their lives. So their physical development, their educational achievements, their social and emotional development. So, you know, for us, we do need to see targeted measures that address this and address child poverty. Well, now, you're you're calling for an increase in what you call the core social welfare rate uh, by €8 per week to ensure those on the lowest incomes can afford the increasing cost of essentials. I mean, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but €8 a week won't allow you to go uh, and party at the weekend and have, you know, what might be seen by some as a decent standard of living. I mean, is €8 a figure just plucked out of the air or on what basis have you arrived at the €8 figure? Yeah, so I suppose at the root cause of poverty is the reality that too many households do not have sufficient incomes to meet their basic needs. So we are saying that, you know, in this announcement that we're anticipating from from the government next year, that we see targeted measures, that there is a, we can see that there is going to be an increase, you know, in years, every year during the budget time, so that we can see that households can get to a minimum essential standard of living. So that means that they have adequate incomes that they can afford to live with with dignity and respect, really. So, you know, to begin with, we are looking at increasing the social welfare rates. 
So that would provide better support for individuals and families trying to get by in a very low income and help prevent the damage carried carried out by poverty in the long term. We also are looking at other measures um, as well as increasing core social welfare rates. So we do want to see an extension of the fuel allowance to those in receipt of the working family payment. And that again is a targeted measure which would benefit just over 50,000 low-income families. But it's a small measure but would really help people that are living in energy poverty at the moment. Um, We are looking, as you say, at increasing the qualified child increase for those um, under 12 by €5 per week and for those over 12 by €10 per week. And again, that's to match the rising cost of raising children and to prevent an increase in child poverty. Uh, Overall, I suppose what we are saying for this announcement that we're anticipating from government is that budgets or financial announcements are about choices and we really need to see targeted measures at the most vulnerable in our society so that we can can see increases in, in core social welfare rates over a range of budgets to lift people out of poverty. But yes, you're you're right with the rising cost of living. It is going to be difficult that, you know, any one announcement or any one budget is going to lift a person or lift a household out household out fully out of poverty. Well, now, the Green Party um, have made it known this morning, it's on the front page of the Irish Independent, that they want a fourth €200 uh, electricity credit uh, postponed in April, but put back until the winter. Um, Do you think that's good thinking, or do you think that uh, a €200 credit should be paid in April, and that uh, when the budget comes around in September, October, that uh, we'll have to put a fresh set of measures in place to deal with the difficulties that people are having currently paying their bills? Well, we do. We have welcomed and we do welcome one-off measures such as those outlined. But I think really, you know, for people to live with a sense of dignity and a sense of respect, um, they need to have a longer-term vision. We need to have a strategic long-term vision announced by our government. So by that, I mean, we need to look at, you know, how people live, where people live. So we do need to look at extending the retrofitting of homes to people that are living in the private rented sector and to retrofit all social housing homes because we know from our experiences of of visiting people in in private rented accommodation and indeed in social local authority homes that people are living in very cold, damp and expensive homes. So we really need to, uh, I suppose, address that once and for all. So while one-off measures are welcome, we really need to look at a long-term vision of how we are going to address energy poverty in the long term. Okay, can I put it to you that uh, Irish welfare payments are amongst the most generous in the EU and one of the arguments sometimes put forward against increased uh, payments or increases in payments is that it discourages people from taking up work. Isn't that the difficulty you face by giving more people welfare payments that uh, they may say, sure, I'm better off on welfare than taking up a job where I work 40 hours a week and then I have to pay tax and actually I can end up at the end of the month with less money in my pocket? Yeah, so what we're seeing you know, when we visit people people that are on social welfare and also people that are on low incomes that are from employment 
is that they're really struggling. And we have the research to back that up. So research from the Phoenician Research Centre shows that at the moment there is a €49 euro gap between core, self, core social welfare rates and the cost of a minimum essential standard of living. So I think, you know, we, we need to address that. We need to address that, you know, at the root cause of poverty is the reality that too many households that don't have sufficient incomes to, to meet their basic needs. And so while one-off payments and supports are welcome to end poverty, we really need to see an end to income inadequacy. And our, our research backs that up, that people are living on inadequate incomes. And also, there isn't the services there. So we know of so many people that are living in homes that are, you know, not fit for purpose, really. They're, they're cold, they're damp. Um, we also know that there's people really struggling with trying to um, get their children educated because of the cost of education and indeed, you know, getting an education for themselves because of the supports there at third level are inadequate. So there really is a whole host of measures there uh, that need to be addressed to, you know, to, uh, you know, enable people to live the way they want to, to live with a sense of dignity. Finally, Marcella, and it's a question I overlooked to ask you earlier on. I mean, traditionally, well, the perception would be that people who would be contacting Vincent de Paul are people either on welfare or on um, some sort of benefits. Is there any signs that people approaching Vincent de Paul now are actually people with jobs and might even be classed as middle class? Yeah, so last year we saw an increase of 24% for first-time callers. And that that was, you know, the first time that we saw such an increase in the the, the level of first-time callers. And those calls it came from people that are really struggling, those people that are on social welfare, but also those people that are working. Um, so I think that is indicative of the real level of need that is out there at the moment because of the cost of living. So I suppose what we would say, if there is people struggling, please get in touch and also try and get in touch with MAPS to get advice around their financial situation. And we would also suggest that people speak with their energy supplier because we know that, you know, many, many people are falling into difficulty with their energy bills. But we, we, we would say that there is help out there and please get in touch. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. That's Marcella Stakem, who's a research and policy officer with St. Vincent de Paul. And of course, MABS is the state-run money and budgeting service. Okay, William was in touch to say pensioners cannot exist on the state pension that has been eroded for the last 12 years. Trying to live and run a home on €254 a week is no joke, as the prices of groceries have increased by 30% in the last 12 months, along with everything else. Gas and fuel has more than doubled in price and the government just turned a blind eye to their responsibilities. We need action from our political leaders to help those who are really struggling. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Betty was in touch to say that none of our public representatives seem to be capable of doing their sums. They cannot add or multiply. They seem to know how to take it away, though, she says. 
Paddy was in touch and asks, do the government and people of Ireland think that people on 40 to 60 grand a year who work Monday to Friday, pay a mortgage, pay their taxes and commute to work are actually doing okay financially? It's such a joke, he says. People assume that because you have a decent wage that you are okay on the money front. But in many cases, that is not the truth. The continual rising cost of living is impacting on everyone, even those who earn good salaries. And we also had a comment from Mary. She was listening in this morning in relation to your interview with Ismi, I heard Neil McDonald saying that affording to pay staff a living wage could see shop retailers change over to automated service rather than employ actual staff. She says she would hate to see our shops becoming more automated. She knows self-service desks have their merits and are great for those in a hurry. But it's also nice to be able to chat with cashiers for some particularly older people. These chats might be the only conversation they have on any particular given day. Okay, we're moving on to a rather interesting story here. And it is that uh, a TD is accusing the government of gross hypocrisy and greenwashing when it comes to climate action. Apparently, the cabinet has approved a deal to buy 3 million euro worth of carbon credits from Slovakia ahead of an EU deadline on emissions targets. And uh, Michael Collins, who is the deputy leader of the Rural Independence Group, said that the Slovakia deal was a shocking waste of money. And he joins me on the line right now. Uh, Michael, um, you say this is a waste of money. Uh, Isn't the reality that uh, the government have, uh, well, they haven't met their targets. And in order to satisfy EU demands for reaching targets, the way around this is to buy in three million euro worth of credits from Slovakia. And that makes us good boys in the class. Isn't that the case? And that's the whole gist uh, of the story that I, 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 I'm so angry with. And I think the general public should be angry with. We haven't met our target. We set an unrealistic target for the people of Ireland. We made them suffer and suffer severe all in the past uh, winter and over the past couple of years. And we couldn't, knowing full well, we're never going to reach our target. So what are we doing now? We're heading off out to Slovakia, spending tax money, um, uh, spending 3 million euros of taxpayers' money to buy carbon credits uh, from Slovakia, a, a country which was allowed to increase its emissions, remember, by 13%. So their government uh, negotiated a brilliant deal uh, for their country, but our government shockingly, shockingly uh, put us into it, uh, agreed to, to uh, lower um, carbon uh, credits, which is going to now cost us dearly, both financially and also, you know, I suppose people living day-to-day lifestyles out there are suffering. And we could easily have, have tried and fought with the same as the Slovakian government and, and ease people into change. And unfortunately, uh, I point the finger straight at the Green Party, supported by Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, to uh, have, have made people suffer severely uh, by, by these decisions, which now have been proven to be wrong. Um, what are the penalties for Ireland if they show up in Brussels and say, well, actually, we didn't meet our targets this year, so um, we'll accept whatever punishment comes along? What are those punishments? Or is it just the government here trying to create the impression to the EU that they are honouring the commitments they gave on reducing carbon emissions? That's what I'm, I, this is what I believe in our group family believe is that we, you know, they've set themselves, as I said, targets that could never have been met. And that was, we were shouting and roaring at that on the other side of the doll and pleading with the ministers and pleading with the Taoiseach and the day, Mia Martin and, and the America and Eamon Ryan that these targets will never be met. And they still went along, went out there 
and set unrealistic targets, causing huge difficulties to ordinary fathers out there every day trying to go to work and take their kids to school, farmers, you know, and 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 uh, other people in businesses trying their best to try and meet with targets that are unrealistic. And at the same time, other countries can set their own targets um, to suit their own needs. And we, we've suffered a lot by this. And I'm just to be honest with you, um, uh, you know, the targets were never realistic. Uh, this, this is no complete waste of money. Instead, we're spending money on retrofitting uh, homes that need to be retrofitted and building renew- on our renewable energy. This is why we should be spending our millions, not wasting it, so that we can keep uh, Minister Ryan smiling around the cabinet table. He's putting his hand in the, in the, into the wallets and the purses of man, woman and child in this country and spending our money recklessly. That's what he's doing, and this government are allowing it happen, and it can't continue. I know, but what I'm trying to establish here is that if we showed up at Brussels at this meeting and said to the commissioner of uh, the day who uh, oversees uh, the whole carbon uh, or decarbonisation process and said, look, we didn't meet our targets this year, uh, wh- what would happen? I mean, will will the EU Commission fine us? Will we have to pay even more than the €3 million? Euro? Will we be financially at a loss? Or will we just get our knuckles wrapped and be told, you know, come back with a better result next time? Well, I, I presume there will be penalties, number one. But in, but in saying that, if, if we had negotiated proper targets that we knew we could reach, and we knew we could work towards, we'd never be in the position we're in now. Other countries have done that, but Ireland decided, in its great wisdom, that we could be the best boys in school. Even though we certainly, if you look at agriculture, we are the best boys in school, but now we're having to be something that makes us uh, un, uh, uh, putting in a target that's unrealistic target, and this is what happened here. So there's no point in saying, you know, what are Europe going to do? We set targets, so we can only blame ourselves now. Uh, targets that we're not, never going to be met. And this is living proof of it, that the Minister for the Environment can walk into Cabinet and say, I want 4 million, 10, 12, 80, no problem. We just buy carbon credits from a, another country, like Slovakia, that's carbon uh, credits that are shooting through the roof because they've, they've negotiated a good deal and we didn't negotiate it. We never negotiated a deal at all, only a shocking bad deal to keep Minister Ryan and the Greens happy inside in government. Would you accept, Michael, that the whole process is a bit of a farce? Because if we don't meet our targets, we buy off Slovakia. If Sweden doesn't meet its targets, it can buy off the Netherlands. If Portugal doesn't meet its targets, it can buy off Italy. And the whole thing does a sort of a, you know, a merry-go-round. And everyone arrives into Brussels and says, oh, yeah, we've all reached our targets. Um, the whole thing is, is in order. Isn't the whole thing a bit of a farce, really? Sadly, is uh, you know it just shows uh, what's going on behind the scenes. But it's coming at a very, very high cost can, to the Irish people. We haven't had the delivery on services like public transport, uh, which you know would have helped in our our carbon credits certainly if it, if, it, if it had become a realistic option for people. It, it isn't a realistic option for the people that I represent because there's no extra transport service since this government uh, came into office, since the Green Party came into office. We're now looking at some P- Green Party members saying that people shouldn't get energy credits and people struggling at this time. But there's no problem finding 4 million or 3 million or whatever they need and more uh, other times and, and buying uh, carbon credits from other countries. As you said, it's, it's farcical to be quite honest with you. And it's, it's damaging our, 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 you know, our environmental uh, beliefs out there because there's some people very, very good and they're doing their best. But, 
this government are hell-bent on making people suffer. Okay, in fairness though, Michael, in fairness to the government, uh, to put the argument the other way, isn't one of the difficulties the government faces here is that there hasn't been quick enough change in the agricultural sector to get methane emissions down because the difficulty the farming sector have is that if there is uh, less cows, for example, in the national herd, we're producing less beef, we're exporting less beef, we're generating less revenue, and that where we sort of gain in one area, we're going to lose in the other, and that the problem here is that the changes in agriculture are not happening fast enough. Well, I, I don't believe in that. I think farmers have, are taking it under the chin and have been uh, finger-pointed out by, by Minister Ryan on several occasions. He's two uh, ministerial colleagues as well. He's two uh, former leader, Michael Martin, and, and the other. I've been saying that a lot of uh, the targets that the Green Party are talking about uh, don't need to be met at all. We don't need to have a culling kettle. We certainly, knowing and listening to him, knowing there is going to be a culling kettle, and that Michael Martin and Leo Varadkar are leading the people astray by saying there isn't. Uh, farmers are not investing in machinery. Farmers are not investing in their farms at this present time because there's, a, there's a, a, a very poor outlook in relation to agriculture. And I've been speaking to a lot of the smaller farmers, the bigger farmers. They don't know which way to turn. It looks to me as if the Green Party wants armchair farmers. Farmers look out the window and do little or no work and have no animals and try and get paid for that. But that's going to have come at a high price for the people of Ireland because we're going to end up importing Brazilian beef, Indian beef, or Indian meat as such into our country when we don't know the origins of this beef. So we certainly have a massive, massive market of, of, of good Irish uh, meat and uh, farm produce that we certainly should be promoting more instead of slating it at every opportunity we, okay, we have. Just let me put this question to you. Your, your pal in the doll, uh, Michael Fitz, uh, Fitzpatrick, has made the point, uh, Fitzmaurice has made the point that... Um, you know, this whole drive uh, to get carbon emissions down is a bit of a joke anyway, because the population of the Republic of Ireland is 5 million. That's less than the city of Chicago. It's half the population of Bombay and New Delhi. What's the point in Ireland trying to be good boys in the class when the other big players on planet Earth are making no attempts whatsoever to reduce their carbon output? Well, can you see, that's the whole point we've been trying to make, but uh, like Minister Ryan is trying to make us the best, best, best boys in the world. And what we need to be doing is encouraging other countries out there that are breaking every environmental rule that's in the book um, uh, to, to, we'll say, improve their standards instead of pointing the finger on what is already probably very, very good standard, a country with very good standards already. So... You know, I look at, you know, I said to you that Slovakia has uh, been allowed to increase its emissions by 13% over the last couple of years. Slovakia is a population of 5.5 million. It was almost similar to Ireland. So why are our targets so different to their targets? So somebody is able to do a good job out there when they go to Europe, but our boys are asleep at the wheel when it comes to Europe. And we've seen that with our minister of agriculture. We've seen that with so many that are not performing um, uh, to the to, uh, to their to the best of their ability to the best of the ability that they're put there to do so to fight for the sector that they're representing and that's not happening at this present time and it's coming at a high cost as I said I've had farm machinery sales operators telling me nobody's buying a machine 
Just, um, just, they, just, nobody, just, they're afraid to invest at this present time because there's an attack on agriculture every day of the week. A minister of the Department of is attack agriculture instead of supporting Irish agriculture. OK, this uh, drive to get carbon emissions down is obviously being driven by the Green Party and the, the, the global green agenda. just want to put this final question to you, Michael. What do you say uh, to the observation that uh, I noticed for St. Patrick's Day, Eamon Ryan is flying to China, Catherine Martin is going to Los Angeles, is in San Diego. Roderick O'Gorman is going to India and Bangladesh. Pippa Haggett is flying to Kenya and Tanzania. And this is the very party that lectures us all about burning up fuel so as to minimise carbon emissions. What does that say about the Greens? It's, you know, it's the same as as the recent, you know, discussions out um, in COP27, where was it? Uh, how many people they took out uh, from Ireland? Uh, it was thirty or forty people out from Ireland uh, flying out in jets. How many uh, jets flew in uh, for that conference in COP27? Well, much of this could have been done on Zoom at home. So, like the Greens are saying one thing and doing another. No, you're talking about going out in St Patrick's Day. All those ministers. I know it's good to sell Ireland, but certainly there could be a scaling down. There could be, you know, there could be a shortage. There's a better way. Maybe send out three or four. The, the senior uh, um, minister, Taoiseach, are the ministers of this country. But it seems to me that there's, there's a frantic rush out of Ireland by every minister and junior minister and every politician they can can think of to try and get across the world and have their few days of glory in the sun when, you know, maybe uh, they'd want to be looking up at the chemtrails in the, in the sky and the environmental damage that they're causing by flying here, flying there, flying everywhere. All right. Okay. We'll leave it there. That's uh, Deputy Michael Collins, who is an independent TD for Cork South West and Deputy Leader of the Rural Independence Group. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a Green Party senator called Vincent Martin, he's a brother of the Minister for Communications, Catherine Martin, believes a new bill will restrict a person accused of coercive control of personally cross-examining a witness, and he believes that will stand up constitutionally. Now, the legislation which was brought to Cabinet yesterday aims to protect vulnerable witnesses from intimidation or re-traumatisation. And uh, I'm joined on the line right now by Caroline Cunahan, who's a legal advisor with Safe Ireland. Safe Ireland provides services for women and children in domestic violence situations. I presume, Caroline, uh, you approve of this bill. Well, I think it's a very positive step forward, Ken. There's no doubt about that, because what it will do is it will open up the possibility that an adult victim of coercive control um, would be able uh, to ask the judge through the prosecutor for permission not to be cross-examined in person by the abuser. And you will appreciate that that is very important when you're talking about an offence as difficult to experience and as serious in its effects as coercive control, which curtails the freedom of a woman and which um, really affects very badly very many aspects of her life so you can imagine the difficulty involved and the trauma involved in being cross-examined personally by the very person you have identified as your abuser it's it's a very difficult situation to find yourself in as a victim so I think this is a positive step forward and can I say also I would commend the Minister for Justice um, for um, being so quick to respond to Senator Martin's um, bill and announce yesterday through the Minister of State James Brown and the Shannon that he was going to bring forward uh, legislative changes to extend that 
what we call special measure um, of prohibiting cross-examination in person to other offences, namely, if I've understood him correctly, what's going to be the new offence of stalking, that's going through the Oireachtas at the moment, the newly revamped offence of harassment, also going through the Oireachtas in the same bill at the moment, and finally, the existing offence of forced marriage. So I, I feel that there's, a, there's the beginnings of a real recognition of the difficulty faced by victims of violence in a close relationship when they uh, try to make the okay. uh, perpetrators of that violence accountable sure, okay. in the criminal court. Okay. Sorry, well, I didn't mean to talk no, over you. No, that's OK. No, I think I talked over you because I'm just mindful of the clock here. But sure. uh, re- regardless of the merits of the case, uh, yeah. a person who is accused, and in some yeah. cases, you know, it may be nothing more than differences of opinion in a relationship on certain issues. A person who's been accused of coercive control and isn't allowed to question the so-called victim, he could argue, let's assume it's male, he could argue that uh, he is not getting the opportunity in a court of law to present, if you like, his side or his interpretation of incidents that have happened and therefore he's not being given a fair crack at justice. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that the Senator's Bill addresses that point and because it is modelled on existing legislation, um, which has been in force since, gosh, either 2017 or 2018, that was when it was first introduced, it was first introduced via the uh, Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act 2017, and it was introduced in relation to all relevant offences uh, for victims under 18 and all, and sexual offences only for victims over the age of 18. And uh, uh, I, I, there has been no constitutional challenge in all that time because the legislation makes provision for um, the cross-examination to be carried out by uh, a qualified lawyer instead of by the accused. So his um, case, his defence, his side of the story will be put to the victim and will be put robustly if that is appropriate, but it will be put to the victim in a controlled manner. Because remember, uh, well, I'm sure, sorry, no, I sound like I'm teaching my grandmother to suck eggs. I don't mean that. But of course, Professional lawyers are controlled to an extent by their governing bodies. They're subject to the rules of the court as well, and they know what the rules are, and they know what the acceptable boundaries are in cross-examination, and they have that emotional distance from it. Okay, so let, let, me, let me put it's this... It's a much easier um, experience than yeah. you see. Not uh, saying it, it's, it's, it's a walk in the park, but it is an easier experience. For yeah, let, let, let's assume that all these cases are male v female, and it's the male who is the person allegedly applying coercive control. Doesn't this, uh, if you like, um, unfairly shift the weight of the case in favour of the victim, in this case, female? In other words, uh, the the female enjoys an imbalance in the courtroom because she can't be questioned on various incidents that happened where she may have provoked her other half and he in turn got angry and he got violent or he applied coercive control and that the weight seems to benefit the, 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 the victim rather than the accused. Isn't that the case? 
Well, I, I honestly can can't uh, accept that. In its, you know, it's not the case that he will not be able to put his case. He can put his case through a lawyer, a properly qualified, experienced criminal lawyer. Can I say paid for by the legal aid system through through criminal legal aid, who knows exactly how far he or she can go to put a question robustly, but within the rules. And that, to my mind, is fair to him and preserves his rights. Uh, And I should say also, I would never assume that only men can commit coercive control. But as to it amounting to a difference of opinion as to what happened on uh, one occasion or another, I, I would just say that in that what happens is with a course of control investigation, they're quite long, they're detailed, they're thorough, they're carried out by Garda officers generally who have some specialisation in this area. And can I say on Garda Siakana have been quite good in making sure that they get training from the best available experts in the whole area of coercive control. It takes time to put a case together because, as I said, every aspect or most aspects of the victim's life are going to okay. be affected. And then that goes to the DPP, and that's a filter. Um, that's, uh, that's also a place where there's a very detailed forensic analysis of whether this case is a proper one to bring and the public okay. interest is also considered. Sure, so, sure. But let me put this scenario yeah. to you. Uh, what about a scenario where we'll say um, a woman is accusing her partner of coercive control yeah. and he uh, has an income whereby he's above the threshold to get free legal aid but he's poor enough that he can't afford a lawyer and therefore he decides I want to represent he want, he decides he wants to represent himself in court. Does this mean in theory he can't question uh, the person who's made the accusation against him? Well he well you see it's not a question of qualifying in the same way same way that you would for civil legal aid. Criminal legal aid is quite different. I mean, the offence, of course, of control is quite serious in that it has a maximum penalty of five years. I can't readily imagine a scenario where somebody who was unable to afford a lawyer to defend themselves on a criminal charge involving a sentence that long would be unable to access criminal legal aid. With great respect, I think that's highly unlikely. Sure. Uh, so he would get one. And... Uh, all right. uh, yeah, and that there's no question of paying a contribution in the same way that you would for civil legal agency. All right. Okay, yeah. we're going to have to leave it there. It's something that will be played out uh, in the weeks and months ahead as it makes its way through the Oireachtas. We're going to have to leave it there. Chris Murray was on sound. Maggie Maguire produced. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. Sinead Brazel is next. And until tomorrow morning, just after the 9 o'clock news, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.